to another episode of Mesoamerican Studies On Air, the podcast that brings you real recent research on ancient Mesoamerica. I'm your host, Catherine Knuckles Wild, and today we are debuting our very first episode of Mesoamerica After Hours, where Tony and I discuss different aspects of Mesoamerica that are showing up in pop culture, in the media, etc., etc. So sit tight, and I really hope you enjoy this first episode of Mesoamerica After Hours. So welcome to our very first official Mesoamerica in the media. So we wanted to talk a little bit about this new discovery that's been published recently about salt and kitchens in Belize and talk a little bit about the different contexts in which we see salt and why salt is really even important. Um, for those of us who know about the ancient world, we know how important salt is, but I feel like sometimes it gets a little overlooked. So let's start by talking about the article. Um, Tony, would you like to give a brief summary just about what the, the, the main discoveries are and why they're important? Yeah, so um, Heather McKillop, she's a Maya archeologist that works in Northern Belize uh, on the coast, mainly in this mangrove peat, like swampy area. And because of the, the, mangrove, the mangrove swamp, there's really good preservation in the muck below the water because there's, there's no oxygen to get at any of like the wooden objects that might cause things to decay and break down. And in the past, you know, her team has found evidence of salt works and they found like jade artifacts um, that, that people, you know, had at the at the time it was late classic is about the time of the the occupation in that area and their latest article is um a result of them mapping wooden posts that have been found in that mangrove peat and realizing you know from from the distribution of the posts that these aren't haphazard or random they're the result of um, buildings placed in that mangrove swamp um, in discrete locations, and they, you know, raised up out of the water, you know, if, if you've ever seen one of those, like, stilted houses, and there's about, like, four or five buildings at the settlement, and based off the artifacts found around those posts, not in it, because that's where the, 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 the buildings would have been, but around it, they determined that some of them, some of those buildings were likely habitation structures, and then the others were are what they call salt kitchens, which is where they were processing brine to make salt. I think that's so cool. I mean, first of all, a peat bog is like, I just, I, I, I'm constantly impressed by the things that we find in these anaerobic environments um because you i mean this is where so, so many of the greatest treasures of mesoamerican history come from right like i think about the yeah. busts and the rubber balls from el manatee that are like what they're they're close to four thousand years old now yeah um, and it just i mean so so first of all that's just mind-blowing to me um and then also it's so funny because um heather mckillop uh, is from Louisiana, which is where I'm doing my program. And so this idea of like stilt houses is something that Louisianans are very familiar with, right? Um, and yeah, I, I think this is such an interesting 
article because it talks about or it really reveals a lot about the lives of the people that would have been living in this area, processing this salt, um, and just gives us, you know, that this is what household archaeology is so so cool for right is giving us like this glimpse into the lives of like regular people yeah and and a, and a side of everyday life that we don't always get a view of you know most most of the time we think maya commoners or any kind of commoners were farmers or maybe craftsmen um but it's it's really rare that you find the locations where they're doing some of their crafts unless it's like like a lapidary workshop at one mm -hmm. of the apartments in Teotihuacan where yeah. there's no other places to, you know, where you could do the crafts except in an apartment space in the city. It's not like mm -hmm. in an alleyway or something. And then salt, you know, workers, salt processing, that's something that really doesn't leave a strong um it, it doesn't leave strong evidence in the archaeological record because salt yeah. will just dissolve mm -hmm. it's not like other crafts yeah and one thing that i really liked from this article is that it it highlighted um the fact that it's showing that these were everyday families right who were producing an overabundance, right? So they were producing more than what they needed and then they would trade with people around them. And so, you know, one of the, the, um, the I was reading an Artnet article about this that was kind of summarizing it and the way that they, that they phrased it was, you know, they didn't have to like muddle with the monarchs, right? The people, like the regular everyday people could kind of just like do their own thing. Um, and this is something that I think we need to talk about too in the context of another episode on chocolate, there was just another article that came out talking about how we found more evidence that chocolate wasn't just limited to elites. And so, you know, I feel like we're, we're getting these, these uh, more frequent reminders, right, that there was a whole world beyond the, the elites that were uh, making all of these stone monuments and, you know, big cities and, and, uh, yeah, it just, it just always makes me so excited when we can learn more about like what the rest of the Mesoamerican world was doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So speaking about what the rest of the Mesoamerican world was doing, let's, let's talk about like what salt means in other parts of Mesoamerica, because every climate's different, but we know that salt is just hugely important for everyday life in the ancient world. Exactly. Well, one of the reasons salt is so um important in mesoamerica is because that while the mesoamerican diet had all of its proteins its necessary proteins from eating corn and bean and squash and chilies and tomatillos and all of that um those proteins are derived from a plant-based protein and not a lot of uh, animal-based protein. While they did eat animals, you know, you, you had your deer, you had fish, iguana, turkey, dog, um, in other wild game and fowl, it wasn't in the same quantities as you would um, encounter in like say Europe. So as a result, um, they needed to add salt to their diet because they weren't getting salt from animal protein. And so, being able to get salt in any way, shape, or form was really, really important, especially if you were landlocked. You know, so either you need you need to find some kind of salt water 
lake and, and boil water there, like, you know, parts of um, the, the Lake Texcoco and the basin of Mexico, or you need to mine rock salt, or you need to trade for it. And trading for it was definitely like the most expensive way to get salt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how, how did salt, how did people get salt in West Mexico or in Central Mexico? So like the Maya, there, there were, there's evidence, well, there's both ethnohistoric and archeological evidence of salt being produced on the coast. Mm -hmm. As most people would expect, you know, people were making sea salt, yeah. you know, taking water, making a brine, boiling it, but that wasn't always possible. So in places like the Sayula Basin in Jalisco or around Lake Quetzillo in Michoacan, you had uh, salt lakes and you had earth that was salty as a result of the lakes drying up not not that lake quetzio dried up but it would you know reduce in size yeah. the sayula lake would dry up completely oh wow and what yeah it, it would go from really shallow where you could even fish a little bit very small fish or collect insect larvae again a source of protein mm -hmm. but every dry season it'll dry up but it in the process it leaves like a crust on the earth which today people collect for cattle feed, you know, mm -hmm. uh, instead of like a salt lake. But in the in the past, at least in the historic past, and then from there you can infer archaeologically what they would do with it is, uh, especially around Lake Sayula, they would build these little huts that are called tepichtle, which means bed in Nahuatl. And what it basically is, is four posts, four trunk, uh, tree trunks with a roof made of thatch, rock, uh, and sand layered. And underneath would be like a, a basin that was lined in lime. And what they would do is they would take this earth and pile it on the roof and then pour salt water onto that earth and it would filter through and create a concentrated brine. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then that brine was either boiled or they made things, uh, these very simple uh, like rectangular structures called eras, which are just sand and lime. And you just, you know, use a shovel, use use whatever, and, and you kind of build up like a little lip and it's, it's really flat, it's really smooth. And they would pour brine into that and let it evaporate, but not completely. You wanted it somewhat, you, you needed to add some brine every day because if you let it dry out, it would crack. And they would have 18 of these eras for a plan, you know, to each of these, these tepuestles. I think that's how it's pronounced. And um, they were able, like the, the, they were able to store about six to eight thousand liters of brine under that structure wow and with those 18 eras in one season they were able to produce about seven tons of salt holy cow yeah seven but the tons? salt wasn't 
Yeah, seven tons. But it wasn't like white and fine like sea salt. It was mm -hmm. it had a you know impurity. So it was either yeah. like a yellowish or reddish, mm. which went into the salt trade, you know, kind of uh system you know where, where salt merchants would come together and markets markets and and trade salts for other stuff so you'd have different grades and but that's like the historic period before like mechanized and industrial forms of salt producing came about but the same kind of principle uh can be inferred for in the archaeological record because there are these like mountains of salty soil not mountains but like hills of salty soil that are found that are just along the edge of the the lake mm. and then there's like certain vessel forms that might have been used for either boiling brine or making um loaves of salt you know to pack it oh, together yeah uh-huh but like the heiress and like the little shack because they're so fragile or they're they're perishable it's hard to find definitive proof of it, right? But we can infer it from the ceramics and and the mountains of dirt. Or mm -hmm. of yeah, it's something that I think is so interesting because um, just like it's hard to find vestiges of salt production in the archaeological record, um, it's really hard to find instances of salt representation in the visual record. Um, so I, you know, I've been thinking uh, this past week about representations of salt in the classic Maya era, right? Um, and even the pre-classic, and we don't have a lot of examples. Um, I'll link uh, to the webpage for this episode. I'll link a couple different articles, um, but one that stands out is uh, by Julia Guernsey, uh, who was looking at pre-classic Isapa, so on the, you know, the Soconusco along the coast of Guatemala. Um, and she makes this, this fantastic argument about um, some of the steely Edisapa that represent or that show the, the maze god sitting in a canoe. But this canoe is really interesting because it's kind of a lidded canoe. So there's like the main canoe, but then there's an upside down canoe um, it's kind of like sitting above it, kind of like it was open. So she calls these lidded canoes. Um, and she previously had made this argument that it, when closed, would look like a quatrefoil, right? Which is like this very mythical, cosmological thing. Um, but then in this article, she talks about some of the ethno-historical evidence of salt production. Um, because in Guatemala, you have the same process that you described for creating this brine, but they would actually use two stacked canoes. And so the canoe on the bottom would be the recipient and the one on top would be the colander, the sieve. And so it would have holes poked into it and then they would put down a layer of palm leaves um, and then uh, some, some earthy soil and then some sand on top. And so they would pour the water in there, it would filter the same way that you described, and then you end up with the brine in the bottom canoe that then gets boiled out um, in, at least in this part, because it's so, in this part of Mesoamerica, because it's so wet and rainy, this has to be done during the dry season uh, so that the water doesn't come and like, you know, dissolve the salt. And so it has to be, the brine has to be boiled down, right? Just like you were saying. Um, but what uh, Guernsey was saying is that this, this representation of these canoes the the thing or the creature inside of the canoe is the maze deity right it's not like a salt god we don't know about a salt god um but 
the maze god becomes sort of this uh, in many contexts, this representation of abundance and fertility, right? And so uh, the argument that this article makes is that, you know, he represents corn, right? He represents maize, obviously, like in first point, but we also see him showing up in scenes of chocolate, where he's like blended with chocolate. Um, and so this could be another instance where he's blending with salt, just in his guise as like a god of abundance, um, so, I mean, that's probably the earliest instance um, that we see of a possible salt representation, right? We don't actually see like granules of salt, but it's this idea of like the maze god in a canoe and this canoe being like a double canoe situation. Um, but then, you know, I also think about, uh, we might not have much about the process, but in the late classic on the murals of Kalakmul, we have this really fantastic labeled scene where a merchant is sitting in front of like a little basket and he's like scooping out salt and handing it to the customer sitting in front of him. Um, and he's actually labeled the salt vendor. So we know exactly what's happening. Um, and we know that this is salt, even though we don't see the salt itself, we just see the basket and the spoon. Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting because it's such a vital part of everyday life, um, but it's such a hard aspect of life to find in the archeological record and in the visual record. Um, but I think really it's when we start thinking about, okay, well, where would we see it if we were to see it, right? Like, how would this show up in the archaeological record? How would this appear in the visual record? And we have to, you know, put pieces together based off of, you know, ethnohistorical information and iconographic interpretation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, very hard to find for sure. Yeah, there is, um, um, so, the ethnohistoric information I got about salt making came from Eduardo Williams, who works in Michoacan. He's worked there for decades. And he was talking about um, you know, some of those those uh indicators in the archaeological record that might be used to, to look for salt. And one of those is he said the best known that he was aware in, in Mesoamerica is a ceramic type called Texcoco fabric marked, which is very rough looking mm -hmm. vessel associated with the markets in Texcoco. And that they thought at first that it was used to boil brine, but like subsequent research is, is changing that idea. Now they think it's to make those salt loaves for, for oh. transportation. And so one of those things like we could look for in, in, in the iconography is people transporting salt loaves, mm -hmm. but I'm not aware of any of that kind of iconography because as valuable as it is, it may not just be something worth depicting. Mm -hmm. And and I'm, I'm curious how it would differ visually, like how would a salt loaf differ visually from any other wrapped thing yeah. you know like 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 a tamal right and tamals are, are sometimes very clearly indicated but um yeah i imagine that you know any sort of small bundle could also look like that yeah but but i think i think that's an important point though is that recognizing that there's different phases that the salt goes through um gives us multiple 
ins, right? Multiple uh, entry points from which we can try to figure out, okay, how would this look? How would it show up? And it's, it's just too bad that like the chemical signature for salt, it's so simple. It's NaCl. Yeah. And like I said, there can be impurities, you know, if it's yellowish or reddish from, from an earth making form of production. But then you would have to have some of that salt somehow survive in the record. Yeah. So you can can test what those impurities are. And then maybe you could test, like do residue analysis on ceramics. But then like you have to rule out that it's not the results of just everyday use or right. storage or cooking. Like, I'm not sure how you, you pinpoint a chemical signature for salt without like some really good preservation, like right. desert conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and especially like you say, when it's such a straightforward and simple chemical signature, uh, and I, I mean, I just, I just think, I don't know. I, I obviously have never done this, but I'm not, I'm no chemist, but I'm like, you know, like salt isn't everything. How, how can you know that it was just salt and not like salt mixed with something or like, you know, like salted meat that was stored inside this container or something. Yeah. What would you say is the main takeaway from this article, at least for you? That salt's one of those things that we don't really give a second thought to, but it's so fundamentally important to society that without it, there, there wouldn't be a society, like, mm. because not only do you need it to survive, in Mesoamerica, the only ways to transport goods in such quantity is either by boat or by person and so if you're producing salt like that like seven tons of salt just you just one structure and you need to get it to all these settlements that's a lot of people you need to mm -hmm. move that and not only do they need to move the salt then you need people with them just carrying supplies for them on their trip Right. Yeah. So, so it, it becomes kind of this growing uh, uh, demand for labor to just get something so simple and, and so like necessary that it is it's in it, it's its own thing unto itself. And I'm interested to see how you know, we, we can try and pinpoint salt production in the past and how that's related to, you know, whether the, there is state control and how the state uses it, you know, to, to gain power or exercise power. Mm -hmm. Or is it something that's completely decentralized? Are these, you know, like, are the people in Belize in the late classic period that Heather McKillop is studying, are they just producing all this salt and then it's just going to the market where, mm -hmm. you know, sure, the nobility may like enforce some trade rules and make sure, you know, people aren't 
cheating people, but they may not have as much control over the market as as in the past, you know, they used to think with the redistributive economy, like mm-hmm. they, they may not be able to control yeah. you know, the salt trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting when you, you know, what you're saying makes me think about at least in the Maya area, the fact that this is a seasonal endeavor, right? So you have, I, you know, I don't have figures on how much salt was produced in some of these areas, but, you know, I'm imagining like seven tons of salt that's being produced from one area in a season and that needs to go there. So like, these aren't systems that are necessarily in place day in, day out all year long, right? These are like, these are fluctuations and it requires adaptation. It requires scheduling. And um, yeah, I think, I think this question of how much the state was involved versus how much was like more of a grassroots thing is really interesting. I, I forget the quantity of salt produced that Heather estimated, but I remember the amount of people that the salt kitchen could provide salt for. And she estimated about 20,000 people per year. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. One kitchen, if I remember, it was part time and not full time. <laughs> so yeah, but that's still like a lot of salt. Mm-hmm. And you know, is it going to the small nearby towns? Is it going to the bigger cities? Like, you know, who who knows? Like, mm-hmm. it's totally possible that people were making salt on their own on a household mm-hmm. basis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. as needed like you don't need to make an industrial like level of salt production you can mm-hmm. you know oh it's the dry season you know one of the things you can do is make some salt for you know for right. you and your family for the year yeah mm-hmm. yeah and I think yeah there's you know it makes me think about other like communities that were mentioned in some of these ethno-historic accounts, right? Where you have the, in the dry season, you have maize and salt. And so people would, uh, one of the things that was mentioned is people would travel in the beginning of the 20th century. And this was something that was mirrored also in a 16th century account is that people would plant their maize for the year. And then they would have like a window, right? Where the maize didn't really need a whole lot. And so they would go travel down to the nearest place where there was salt, um, grab the salt and then come back up. Um, and so, yeah, like, I, I think there's, I mean, there's obviously so much we don't, we don't think about but um and you know these are also accounts that just suggest continuity into the ancient times um they can't confirm it but i you know if if things didn't change from like the 1500s to the 1900s uh they've at least been going on for at least a few hundred years before that i would think well that's like one of the the interesting things eduardo williams wrote about was that um there's a document called the Relacion de la Providencia de Motines. Mm-hmm. It's dated 1580. And it describes basically the same method of salt production as the one from the early 19th or late 19th, mm-hmm. early 20th century, except with pots. Yeah. It's like your canoes as well, where it's two pots stacked on top of one mm-hmm. another holes in the top pot you layer the the 
the filter with the grass and whatnot, and then you add the salty earth, and then you pour in the brine, and then when it collects on the bottom, you can boil that. And that's pots that's smaller scale, but it's totally doable at a at a household scale. Yeah. And so, like, maybe that was one way to subvert state power is to make salt at home and not have to rely on the market. Yeah, these are like the the homesteaders of, you know, I think about like today, right? Like in the pandemic era, you know, yeah. people started making bread at home again. And uh, yeah. I mean, I, I started making my own pickles as well. Like There you I go, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I was not as resourceful. I started making perfumes. <laughs> but, you know, I, to, to kind of like bring us back to, uh, to wrapping up, I think for me, you know, especially as someone who um, works with primarily elite materials, right? Um, as an art historian, so much of what I work with comes from the, you know, the, the, the upper class because very few things actually last. Um, or, you know, we, we also don't excavate as often in these smaller uh, household areas. Um, but, you know, as someone who works primarily with elite objects, stuff like this is really important for me and for other people who study in a similar area to me, um, that there's really important stuff outside of this, this upper class sphere. And I know that sounds so obvious to say, right? Um, but I think for me, the message that comes across is like, think bigger, think outside the box, right? Like there's, uh, that's one reason why this article by Julia Guernsey was something that I wanted to talk about because Julia Guernsey is a great example of looking beyond um, the elite art and visual culture. Um, she does a great job at looking at household archeological finds and figuring out what this art did for people who weren't like the elite, right? Um, and so I think that that's a really good example for me of seeing how even this art by, you know, made, made by the state can still represent things that tie into the everyday lives of normal people. One of the things I've I've always kind of been interested in is food history, mm. especially food history in Mesoamerica. And unfortunately, food is also one of those things that doesn't preserve well in the archaeological record. Yeah. And even depictions of food are not always that clear. Mm -hmm. So like the extent of food preservation using salt has been like a question on my mind like it kind of makes sense yes of course you would salt fish you know to have throughout the year or salt other meats but did they just simply salt it or did they do something else like if you got a deer you have intestines were they making like a kind of sausage a venison sausage mm -hmm. one of those universalities maybe is is the sausage um i know like in the andes they would make jerky and jerky mm -hmm. the word jerky is actually from the quechua yeah. word for jerky um but they could kind of freeze dry it rather than mm -hmm. you know preserve it or you know make something like a like a prosciutto you know mm -hmm. um 
and, and Mexico has the climate to do some of the stuff like that, like yeah. preserving meats. It's, it's not everywhere because mm-hmm. it, it tends to be hotter and, and more moist. But uh, I'm just, just kind of hope like someone's going to go into a cave one day and find preserve like sausages or, or <laughs> like preserve like cuts of meat that people were trying to, to preserve in the cave climate. Mm-hmm. And that might kind of open our eyes to the food history in Mesoamerica that the Spanish didn't record in yeah. the, the early post-conquest period. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're going to find it, it'll be in a cave. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that I think that's really um, that's really interesting because there is I remember one of the first things that kind of got me really excited about ancient Mesoamerica was this idea of foods, right? Figuring out what foods came from this region, how they were prepared. Um, well, I mean, we, we could have an entire episode about food and I would be happy. Well, I definitely think that we should have another episode soon talking about chocolate. Um, I've seen a couple good articles come up recently about some new cacao discoveries. Um, but yeah, other than that, I, you know, I've really enjoyed talking about salt. Yeah, it's the unsung commodity in, in the ancient world. It really is. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this first episode of Mesoamerica After Hours. Please let us know via email or social media if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in the next episode. Um, And as always, we look forward to seeing you next time.